I hope um, by the time this evening is over that uh, I'll have convinced you that when it comes to thinking about the book of Leviticus and this part of the Old Testament, that you will appreciate how rich it is in the theme of the grace of God. Uh, Very often when uh, Christians think about the Old Testament in particular and when they go back to Uh, All that happens at Mount Sinai, the idea of law and legalism perhaps comes to the fore, and I want to try and dispel that myth this evening. Thinking about Leviticus, I have chosen this theme, preparing for paradise, and let me remind you just of one or two comments that I made last week because I think it's important to not forget these things. When we come to Leviticus, we're entering a very different culture. It's a world not like our own. And if we're going to understand this culture, this world, we've got to accommodate ourselves to it. We also need to appreciate something of the literary and historical context in which Leviticus is placed. The Israelites are on a journey to the promised land, but it's not just simply about moving from Egypt to Canaan. It's actually a journey that has as its purpose the idea that they will come to live in God's holy presence. Um, You may recall last week I picked up on what the Israelites sing as they celebrate their deliverance from the Egyptian army. And in that song, which probably was composed by Miriam, and she's described as being a prophet, she composed these words, this expectation. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, the holy place, O Lord, which your hands have established. That's the destination. But before the Israelites get to God's holy mountain in the promised land, they come to another mountain, Mount Sinai. And everything that's recorded in the book of Leviticus is about what God said to them through Moses at Mount Sinai. When they first arrive at Mount Sinai, they enter into a special relationship with God. There is the making of a covenant, a friendship treaty, And this prepares the way for God to come and dwell with the people. Uh, To facilitate this, the Israelites are instructed to build the tabernacle. This tent, which in many ways doesn't look all that special, and yet in the ancient world there was so much gold and silver and and uh, fine linen and the like used in the construction of it that it did stand apart. 
that this tent in many ways resembles Mount Sinai. And uh, there's a sense in which it enables the people to take Mount Sinai with them as they travel on to the promised land. Leviticus looks forward to when the people will live with God on his holy mountain in harmony with him. But as I underlined last week, for this to happen, the people have to share God's holiness. And so we note it that one of the central themes of Leviticus is the theme of holiness. And one of the key verses is Leviticus 19, verse 2. Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am, uh, am holy. I haven't corrected that mistake from last week. Tut, tut. I drew your attention to the fact that there are different stages that lead towards ultimate holiness. And in some way, the transition from one stage to another helps clarify the nature of holiness. Now, let me use a slightly different illustration this evening. Imagine that the center of this circle represents ultimate, intense holiness. Before you get there, you go through sort of different stages that are increasingly holy. Um, If you had lived in the Israelite camp, that area would have been thought of as clean. When you moved into the tabernacle courtyard, that area would have been thought of as being somewhat holy. But then there was the holy place, which was actually inside the tent. And then in the second compartment inside the tent was the holy of holies. I hope you can get the picture. There are differing levels of holiness. And as you explore this, I think it's clear that you see that as you move from one stage to another, there is greater purity, greater perfection, greater wholeness. And I want to suggest also, I think, greater love. Um, So that The one who is the Holy One, God himself, is perfect in purity, perfect in wholeness, completeness, and perfect in love. That's what holiness embraces. But when we think about the holiness of Leviticus, we also need to appreciate that In the book of Leviticus, we encounter the opposite of holiness, uncleanness. And one of the instructions that's given to the priests is that they are to distinguish between the holy and the unclean. It's put like this in Leviticus 10. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common that which is not holy, between the unclean 
and the clean. Um, just to underline the importance of the terminology that's being used here for, for, for Leviticus, um, the word clean is used 74 times in Leviticus, which is a third of all the occurrences in the Old Testament. The word unclean comes 132 times in Leviticus, which is uh, more than half of all the occurrences that you have in the Old Testament. So these concepts of clean and unclean are important when you look at Leviticus. To perhaps grasp something of what's going on here, uh, it might be helpful to think of Leviticus as reflecting uh, an understanding of a, you might call it a holiness, uncleanness spectrum. Um, This spectrum is meant to reflect the fact that at one extreme, one, at one side, you have holiness, um, ultimate holiness, intense holiness. And then as you move to the middle of the spectrum, you come into an area that might be thought of as just simply as being clean or neutral. And then as you move further to the other side, you encounter greater uncleanness. And so, just as there are differing degrees of holiness, so there are differing degrees of uncleanness, differing intensities of uncleanness. Um, here, for example, uh, are a few verses from Leviticus 11 that reflect this. Um, let me read it, and then I'll comment on it. Of all the animals that walk on all fours, those that walk on their paws are unclean for you. Um, the Israelites weren't permitted to eat animals with claws. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean until evening. So if you come upon a dead dog and you touch it, you will be unclean until the evening. Anyone who picks up their carcasses must wash their clothes, and they will be unclean till evening. Now, notice the difference. Simply touching gives you, makes you unclean to a certain degree, but all you have to do is wait for the passage of time, and then you'll be clean again. If you actually carry this carcass, you've got to do something more. You've got to um, wash your clothes, and then wait some time in order to be clean again. Do you get, uh, you get a sense there of the difference? Now, now uh, some of you are probably wondering, what on earth is going on behind that. Now, you'll have to come back next week, and I will tell you, I will, I will do a little bit more by way of unpacking some of the, what, what's, what lies behind these particular uh, regulations. How, how are we to understand them? But for now, 
what's important for you to appreciate is that you have differing degrees of uncleanness as you have with holiness. And one of the things that's quite significant as you work through the book of Leviticus is that it will um, keep reminding you of these degrees of holiness and degrees of uncleanness. Um, You see this reflected even when you look at the layout of the Israelite camp. Um, Those who were outside the camp were essentially thought of as being unclean. So non-Israelites, Gentiles, are unclean. Um, Those who live within the camp, the Israelites, are to be clean, thought of as clean. But uh, if something happens to you to make you unclean, then you have to go outside the camp. You can't remain in the camp. Um, The tabernacle area is holy. And the folks who are designated holy, who can serve within the tabernacle, are the priests. So different, uh, there, there are these different stages, different levels of holiness or of uncleanness. And you've got to understand that this world that you encounter in Leviticus is structured like this. Um, This was exceptionally important for the ancient Israelites. It influenced almost everything they did. It impacted their lives in a day-to-day way. And it taught them something about the nature of holiness and uncleanness. Now, um, I've said already, you're going to have to come back, I'm afraid. Um, And we'll think next week a little bit more about the nature of holiness and uncleanness and how they relate to one another and how in some way even uncleanness is dynamic in nature and uh, something to be feared, troubled by. Having mentioned these different boundaries, these different categories of cleanness and uncleanness, It's very important to appreciate that within the book of Leviticus, we encounter rituals that enable people to move from one point on this holiness spectrum to another. Uh, Sometimes the rituals may have to do with taking someone who is unclean, making them clean. The rituals may have to do with someone who is clean becoming holy. Um, And we might think of these rituals as rituals for cleansing or consecration. Um, But there's a variety of them within the book of Leviticus. Um, Let me give you one example, but uh, if you read through Leviticus, you'll discover that there are other examples that that, uh, also reflect what I'm getting at at this point. Um, This passage has to do with a man who has had some kind of uh, genital discharge. Um, When a man is cleansed from his discharge, 
He is to count off seven days for his ceremonial cleansing, period of time. He must wash his clothes and bathe himself with fresh water, and he will be clean. That's not the end of the ritual. On the eighth day, he must take two doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of that, to the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. The priest is to sacrifice them. The one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. Um, two different types of offering. In this way, he will make atonement before the Lord for the man because of his discharge. So this man has become um, ceremonially unclean and he has to go through this ritual in order to be made clean again and to be reintegrated into the Israelite community. Leviticus has, has a number of these different rituals spread throughout it. The more unclean you are, the longer the process of cleansing and sanctifying takes. And so I've put it like this. Um, the more intense the degree of holiness being attained, the more holy you want to become, the more extensive is the process of sanctification or consecration. I um, hope you can see what I'm getting at there, but if you are aiming for a high degree of holiness in this, in this culture, then you have to go through what will be a um, complex ritual in order to achieve that level of holiness. Um, you could take, um, I'm not going to do this, but if you want to see another example of this, turn to Leviticus 14 and you'll see another ritual to do with a person being reintegrated into the Israelite camp. But for now, I want to focus on the process that you, that's described in Leviticus 8 that has to do with how the priests, in particular the high priest, uh, is set apart in order to serve within the tabernacle. Um, now, the high priest will be permitted one day in the year to enter into the Holy of Holies, into God's presence. So there's a sense in which when you see what has to be done for the high priest, you ought to be thinking to yourself, well, this in some way needs to be done for me if I'm actually going to live in the presence of God, in the presence of the Holy One. Uh, bear that in mind as we think about what's done in Leviticus. The ritual involves a series of activities. Um, I've 
I'm trying to simplify this as much as I can, so we'll not spend too long on it, but I want to read through some of Leviticus 8. Uh, Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. He put the tunic on Aaron, tied the sash around him, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him. Um, Note the first part of this process has to do with washing, with cleansing, making clean. Jumping on a few verses. Then Moses took the anointing oil uh, and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it and so consecrated them. I I should have made the point that uh, Leviticus 8 isn't only about the consecrating of the priests. It's also about the consecration of the tabernacle. It also has to be made holy. And there are certain uh, connections between the sanctifying, the making holy of the priests, and the making holy of the tent in which they will serve. So here you have um, oil being sprinkled um, on the tabernacle. Uh, He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them, to make them holy. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So we've had an act, a ritual of washing. And then oil being used, special oil being used to anoint. The ritual's not over yet. Moses then presented the bull for the sin offering. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Um, In all likelihood, uh, each person, each man involved, puts his right hand, just one hand, on the the head uh, of this bull. Moses slaughtered the bull and then took some of the blood and with his finger he put it on all the horns of the altar to purify or to cleanse the altar. Um, I hope you've possibly seen maybe a photograph or a picture of these, this, these altars with their kind of, uh, the four corners have um, sort of a bit that's raised up and they're referred to as the horns of the altar. So here you have Moses taking some of the blood of this particular offering and putting it on the corners, the edges, the, the, um, the extremities of the altar in order to purify it. Uh, The passage goes on to say, let me just read what goes on to say beyond this. He poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. So he consecrated it to make atonement for it. Um, Not quite finished. uh, Because Moses then presents another offering. 
Moses then presented the ram for the burnt offering or for the whole burnt offering. Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Then Moses slaughtered the ram and splashed the blood against the sides of the altar. Now, I want you to note, with the previous sacrifice, he took some blood with his finger and touched the extremities, the corners of the altar. Now he sprinkles some blood against the altar. And this is a different type of sacrifice that he's making. Uh, Move on. He then presented the other ram... Um, the ram for the ordination. Um, I, have, I have some trouble with uh, how this gets translated um, because I'm not sure that the Hebrew text is really talking about ordination as such. Um, I, it, it, it's, it talks about filling the hand of the priest. And some scholars think that filling the hand of somebody in this context has to do with ordination. Uh, I have a query about that. But, but anyway, that's, that's slightly irrelevant for what I want to say this evening. He, he, then prepared, he then presented the other ram, the ram for the ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on its head. Moses slaughtered the ram, took some of its blood, and then note what he does. Um, put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Uh, Moses also brought Aaron's sons forward and put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then he splashed blood against the sides of the altar. Uh, Now, can you see a parallel here between what's happening to uh, Aaron and his sons and what was done to the altar? Uh, The extremities of the altar have blood uh, daubed on them. The same thing is now happening as regards Aaron and his sons. Uh, The ritual's not quite over. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to jump over a little bit of it, and then we read about something else. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood from the altar and sprinkled them on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and their garments. Okay. Um, Do you remember with the altar, blood was daubed on it and then blood was sprinkled on it, two separate actions? The same thing is happening here with Aaron and the priests. The blood is actually applied twice, not once, but twice to them. The final part of the ritual, uh, 
Moses then said to Aaron and his sons, Cook the meat at the entrance to the tent of meeting and eat it there with the bread from the basket of ordination offerings. As I, as I was commanded, Aaron and his sons are to eat it. Then burn up the rest of the meat and the bread. And this ritual that I've described to you was to happen each day for seven days. This wasn't just a, a one-off ritual for one day. Every day this had to be repeated. So that these ordinary Israelites, and particularly the high priest, um, who was starting out as an ordinary Israelite, so that he could become the most holy priest. Okay, get the picture? Okay. Well, in this process of consecrating the priests, there are actually three different offerings used. Um, and probably the thing that confuses most folks when they come to the book of Leviticus is that you encounter these different offerings be, being described. But it's hard perhaps to see the function or the purpose of each offering, to, to, to appreciate what's actually happening when that particular offering is made. And uh, that difficulty is compounded by the terminology that gets used. Uh, because very often the first offering that I've listed here is described as the sin offering. Uh, well, almost all of these offerings have to do with sin in some way or other. And so a better term to describe it would be the purification offering. It's about purifying, cleansing. Um, there is the whole burnt offering. It's another offering in which the entire animal is burnt up on the altar. And then the third offering that you encounter is sometimes referred to as the peace offering because its name is similar to the word shalom, which has that sense of peace, uh, wholeness, uh, so this third offering sometimes gets referred to as the, the peace offering. And some scholars prefer to describe it as the fellowship offering because this offering in particular involves the worshiper eating something of the sacrifice and in a sense having fellowship, having a meal with other people. Uh, that's why it gets called the fellowship offering. When you begin to take, to, to, to analyze these offerings a little bit further, it becomes clear that the process of consecration uh, involves certain things. It involves uh, paying a ransom, being purified, um, which is separate 
from being sanctified, being made holy. And then there's also involved the the, the removing of defilement caused by human sin. Um, So, let's go back to what happens when the the priests and the uh, tabernacle items are being consecrated, being made holy. Um, The purification offering is used. And the purification offering uh, is used to purify not the people, but the altar and items within the tabernacle which become defiled by um, unclean people. Uh, There's a sense in which um, we, we may find this hard to appreciate, but, you've, but going back into the culture of ancient Israel, they believed that when people did wrong things, when they were unclean, that left some kind of stain, some kind of mark, and that had to be dealt with. And the purification offering was about removing that stain, that defilement, um, In the Old Testament, another example of this is actually the flood narrative. Um, Because at the beginning of the flood narrative, before the flood comes in the days of Noah, um, the earth is polluted by the violence of humanity. And the um, the, the earth is cleansed by the flood. And there's a new start after the flood because that defilement has been removed and taken away. So human sin, human wrongdoing in some way defiles, pollutes. And we need to, in a sense, appreciate that. The whole burnt offering that's used um, is thought of as doing two things. Um, One is it pays a ransom. Um, It is a case of uh, one life being substituted for another. And in that sense, a ransom is paid. It also involves, and and it's actually quite a complicated um, ritual because uh, it, it atones, but atonement involves not only paying a ransom, It also involves purifying, cleansing. And the whole burnt offering would appear also to be involved in, in some way, purifying or cleansing the person. Um, So you have a sin offering, purification offering, that cleanses items in the tabernacle that have been defiled, but not people. Uh, blood is never taken from the whole burnt o- from the purification offering and applied to people. It's always to objects. Um, but uh, uh, the the whole burnt offering appears to have within it two ideas of paying a ransom and also purifying. Uh, and then the fellowship offering, the other one that I mentioned, um, with that particular offering. Blood can be applied to people. 
And it also seems to have this sense of removing defilement, purifying. Okay. But you may have appreciated that there were two stages to blood being applied to people. There was the first stage when it was daubed on the, the right ear and thumb and toe. Um, and at that stage, it seems to be just simply cleansing, making clean. But just being made clean does not make you holy. Okay. Just being made clean doesn't make you holy. And so there's a second application of blood. And the thing that's interesting about the second application of blood is this, that the blood is taken from the altar and then sprinkled on the people. Uh, the, the, the blood that's daubed initially is taken from the sacrifice before it's been put on the altar. But you now take blood from the altar and the blood that has been put on the altar as it has in some way been made holy. And that holy blood then makes the person holy. Get, see, see the subtle difference? And Isaiah 6 is slightly different because it's, it's, it's dealing with this. It's the same kind of idea where a coal is taken from the altar to cleanse the prophet Isaiah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very similar concept to what you have here with the sacrifices, okay, and with, with the blood. But uh, for now, I just want you to appreciate that within these rituals, there, there, there are a number of different things being addressed. And, and you've got to... Ha- You've got to, in some way, understand the significance of each part in order to build up this larger picture of what's going on. So, these rituals to do with making people holy address paying a ransom, purifying them, actually making them holy, and removing the defilement that's caused by human sin. Interestingly, um, the process by which Aaron and his sons are consecrated has certain similarities with the Passover ritual. And hopefully you may be able to see these connections um, reasonably easily. Um, We discover that when we turn to Passover, a ransom... You remember the Israelites were were to take... Um, uh, a sheep a year old and they were to offer it as a sacrifice in order to ensure that the firstborn males were not put to death. So uh, the sacrifice prevents the death of the firstborn males. A ransom is paid. Then some of the blood from the sacrifice was taken and was put around the door frame. And hyssop was used, and that's often associated with purifying, cleansing. So you have a ransom being paid. You have the homes being purified. And then the point that's perhaps sometimes missed when people think about Passover is that the people are instructed to eat 
the Passover meat. Um, and Exodus 12 is very careful to try and ensure that uh, no more meat uh, will be uh, created by, you, you don't, if, if you have two small families, they're to get together and, and just be one family when they, when they, when they offer the sacrifice so that, uh, because they don't need two sacrifices. One sacrifice will provide enough meat for them to eat. There's no need to kill a second animal. Um, uh, but the eating of the meat is actually very important. And uh, in Exodus 12, the point is made, if any of this meat is left over, they're not to take it with them. It must be burnt because it's holy meat. There's something special about it. Um, well, in this Passover ritual, you have a ransom being paid, you have purifying taking place, and by imbibing holy meat, the people, the firstborn, are consecrated. They're made holy. Interestingly, Exodus 13 makes the point that the firstborn now belong to God. They are his because of the Passover. Um, um, the Passover is very much like what happens with the consecration of the priests. It's the same kind of ritual with the same kind of uh, elements within it. Um, we also discover that um, when you come to Mount Sinai at the sealing of the covenant, once again there is a ritual that involves sacrifices, the sprinkling of blood, and the eating of the sacrificial meat. Again, at Mount Sinai, the elders are made holy so that they can actually begin to go up the mountain. Uh, again, here's a ritual that transforms people from being unclean or common, neutral, whatever, to making them holy. Now, what's the significance of all this? Why spend so much time on this? Well, if we grasp something of the intensity of God's holiness and our own uncleanness, we will be concerned to discover how can we ever come into God's presence? How can I, as someone who is polluted and unclean, uh, sinful, how can I ever come into the presence of the most holy God. Well, Leviticus begins to help us see how this might happen. And when you come to the book of Leviticus, you discover that it opens with a series of chapters that have to do with different sacrifices. I've actually only picked up on three of them that there are two others that I haven't mentioned. But these different sacrifices 
address different aspects of our broken relationship with God and how it may be repaired. I began by saying that Leviticus is very much about the grace of God because it is unattainable but for the grace of God. In the Exodus story, God is the one who redeems the Israelites from the power of evil. But he's also the one who provides for them to be ransomed from the domain of death. He provides for them to be purified and cleansed. And he enables them to be made holy. It is God who provides the means to become holy. And the more we appreciate our own uncleanness, our own unworthiness, our own imperfection, then the more we will marvel at a holy God and what he does to enable us to come into his presence. In all of this, Leviticus actually anticipates Jesus Christ. And you've got to see this connection to complete the big picture. Because Jesus is the one who gives his life as a ransom for you and me to deliver us from the power of death. He is the one who cleanses us from defilement, who enables our consciences to be clear and cleansed. And remarkably, he is also the one who makes us holy, who imparts holiness holiness to us so that we can enter God's presence. Um, I'm not going to take time to, in a sense, unpack how Jesus fulfills all of these things, but, but I hope that you'll see at least the direction in which we're going. So Leviticus... It's about preparing for paradise. It's about preparing to come into the presence of God. It's about reminding us of God's holiness, how he is so utterly pure and perfect. But it's also a book which offers us hope because those of us who sense that we can never come into God's presence can look to Leviticus and see that God has provided in these rituals which point us to Christ, he has provided a way for us to know him. I hope you can see the importance of that. Let's pray together, and then Norman's going to come and lead us in a couple of items of worship. Heavenly Father, we may struggle at times to understand the details. And perhaps 
We don't always grasp what uh, is meant by this action or that action, especially in the book of Leviticus. But we appreciate that in your grace and mercy, you enabled these ancient Israelites who who are no different to us in their sinfulness and rebelliousness and defilement, you enabled them to come and live in your presence. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that with hindsight, we can now look to Christ. And we can find in him the perfect, ultimate sacrifice. The one who has paid that ransom. The one who cleanses and purifies us. The one who sanctifies us. That we may come into your presence and be your holy ones. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done in Christ and for how, even in the Old Testament Scriptures, your grace is made apparent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.